0: Hey, folks, and welcome to another episode of Leadership Tales Podcast. Delighted today to be joined by Peter Lederer. Peter Lederer is now chairman of the Edinburgh Military Tattoo. He has been chairman of Glen Eagles, uh, the hotel in Scotland, luxury hotel in Scotland, the host of the G8, and also the Ryder Cup, which we'll talk about today. Uh, He's also had an amazing career involving working for four seasons when it was a smaller organization that is now in Canada, and then coming back and working with Diageo, Visit a number of other areas here. So we're going to hear some stories today about Peter telling about his career. And under those, I'm fascinated to listen to a number of things around his dyslexia, around his struggles with that, but also how he took on that challenge and actually made it uh, something that is part of his humble uh, nature. And his humility, but we're also going to start to hear about what it's like to run a luxury hotel. Where I think there's huge lessons for people who run normal businesses that are not involved in luxury to understand what it takes to meet the the standards and the expectations of luxury guests paying a high price. So delighted and honoured that Peter came on the podcast today, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Hi, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Couldn't be more delighted to be recording this just after New Year with a friend from Edinburgh and starting to think about uh, 2022. Peter Lederer is our guest today, joined us from Edinburgh. Peter and I go way back to uh, a time when he was chairman of Glen Eagles and we were working together with leading hotels of the world and some board work we did there. And we've kept in contact since then. And many tales to tell today, Peter, but I'd love to just get you to introduce to the listeners who you are and maybe a bit about your background. That would be great. Welcome.
1: Yes, thank you, Colin. It's uh, good to be with you. And uh, yes, a, a bit of uh, background. I'll go over the, my years. So born in London, my father was a civil engineer. So actually before school, I was went to Australia and Jersey and other places, but ended up back in London for school. My time at school was uh, not a good time, probably the worst time of my life. I'll explain why for maybe later we can talk about it. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, not a fun time. But eventually got into college. I went to hotel school. I did a national diploma in hotel keeping and catering, as it was called then, mainly because I could get in with the qualifications I had. Mm -hmm. (laughs) which i'm not sure says something about the industry's qualifications or what anyway
0: (laughs) we could go there later (laughs) we can
1: go there go there later but but no it was a good course for one particular reason because it was those days it was called a sandwich course so Mm -hmm. we were in college for four or five months a year but the rest of the year you were out in industry Mm -hmm. so the first year you did restaurants second year you did uh, kitchen third year you did bars and cellars and the fourth year did front office and night audit things like that so it really worked well for me because it was practical and it was hands-on and again we'll talk about uh, dyslexia later explaining my school life and uh, that I learned much better hands-on and doing it rather than sitting in a classroom when I finished that course this is now 1972 1972 in London was uh, rubbish piled high on every street corner Mm -hmm. you only got four hours of power and then it went off for four hours. Everybody was on strike. The IMF was visiting London most weeks, bailing us out as a country. It was a bit like living in Greece, I suppose, in the, yeah. a few years ago. But we were really, the country was bankrupt. So mm-hmm. as a 21-year-old, I thought, this is not a country where my future lies. I'd, I'd like to see other ways of doing things. I'd also worked for a company called um, Sonesta, mm-hmm. Hotel Corporation of America, and having worked during my uh, training with British companies and then finally with an American company, the difference could not have been more clear. I mean, it was just Absolutely. unbelievable. Um, so I said, I've got to experience this. So I applied to go to the States uh, and I applied to go to Canada. Uh, the States came back and said, yes, you can come. You are, Of course, you do understand you're eligible for call-up to go to Vietnam. <laughs> I said, let me think about that for a nanosecond or two. <laughs> I don't mind going to war, but uh, a war like that was not on my agenda. Uh, So I ended up going to Canada, which was, I say, a long process because it was, even then, they had a point system and it was a classic catch 22 where you, if you had a job, that would get you enough points to get in, but uh, you couldn't get a job without your permit. So so I ended up, I convinced the Canadian government in London that uh, I should go and accepted all their things that, uh, that they asked of me. It took me about six months, but eventually left to go to Canada in 72. No job, mm-hmm. nowhere to live, nowhere to stay, didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. So landed in Toronto in the 26th of November, 1972, just staring at, I got to immigration and they said, uh, do you have anywhere to stay? And I said, <laughs> no. And I said, well, said, do you want to stay in the hotel we use? And I said, well, if that's, it was a very good deal. Mm. And I said, yes. And then I got to the hotel, realized I was the only person coming in. All the other people in the hotel were being sent (laughs) sent out. (laughs) But so I Mm. then spent uh, between that end of November and Christmas trying to find a job, trunching up and down snow covered streets up to my knees sometimes in in arriving at an interview with trousers soaking wet below the knee uh, because steam coming off them
0: yeah you couldn't Um, pick a worse time to go to canada (laughs) it
1: was pretty tough the best thing my mother did for me she made insisted i take a good coat um, and that i had a return ticket (laughs) um just in case, but I wasn't going to use that. Um, So I eventually got a job at Four Seasons. Uh, Four Mm -hmm. Seasons in these days, uh, now obviously a global company, but then only had about six hotels. they just opened in London, had a hotel in uh, Israel, but apart from that, they had four hotels in Canada. I was there for six years. I started out Front Desk. Uh, They sent me to Montreal to open a hotel in Montreal. They sent me to Ottawa to take over a hotel that was being rebranded for all seasons came back to Toronto as uh, resident manager at the end of the park which was their flagship or their main hotel where the head office was Mm. was very happy six years till 78 with them and would have been general manager kind of on on, in the on track for general management at at hotel but realized that before I made that step, maybe I needed to do something else because once I'd made that step, it's difficult Mm -hmm. to go sideways or step back from it. So I did my entrepreneurial bit and Mm -hmm. with two other friends, we started a company that was consulting and design and construction in the hotel, restaurant sector. Mm. This was the peak of discotheques. Yeah, so we I can have,
0: just imagine the outfits, Peter, you were wearing. Yeah, yeah. I,
1: have, I have been to and opened more discotheques than most people in the world. Um, I love
0: the fact you're calling them discotheques, yeah, and everybody's like, what are those?
1: Well, it, exactly, <laughs> yes, I probably have to explain what a discotheque is, yeah. But they'll, they'll be back, don't worry. Yeah. Um, exactly. <laughs> um, so did that for, and then was approached by a colleague who was the – legal counsel to uh, Izzy Sharp at Four Seasons. He'd left and gone to a company called Plaza Hotels mm-hmm. uh, and went back. You know, I'd missed hotels, they're kind of hands-on rather than being a consultant. And I, yeah. I, I learned a lot, being it was the entrepreneurial bit and the consultancy bit, but I just missed hands-on getting things done. Yeah. Uh, went back to the hotel and then was approached uh, – to come, I'd vowed never to come back to the UK. Uh, by this point, I'd married Marilyn, a Canadian, and uh, mm-hmm. my first son had just been born in '83. And I was approached: would I come back and look at something called Glen Eagles? And I knew Glen Eagles from my training days because I'd gone up to see a friend there. So, met Peter Tari in New York, who was the boss at the time. And he asked me to come back to Glen Eagles. I came to visit. I saw the hotel. And it comes back to your book on mm-hmm. about uh, failure. But it's more about risk um, mm-hmm. and doing things that have a high potential of failure. Mm-hmm. And I mean, every told me, why are you going to Scotland? Why are you taking over a hotel that's only open seven months a year? Why are you going, taking this risk and going, you know, effectively a tired uh, hotel that's seasonal. You know, how's that going to work? Why are you doing it?
0: Mm. I didn't know that Glen Eagles was seasonal. That's, yeah. Oh, yeah that
1: seasonal is. till 1980. Uh, well, the first winter, 83, 84, it opened year-round. Wow. Didn't know, yeah. And for the first five years I was there, everybody told me it wouldn't work. You know, mm. you, you'll be back to seasonal and all yeah. that. Uh, but then when I arrived, I <laughs> think uh, after Boxing Day in 83, to take the job. My father met me at Heathrow with a copy of the Financial Times announcing that uh, Glen Eagles had been approached by a takeover bid by Bell's mm. Whiskey. So I called the chief executive and said, you still want me to come? He said, oh, yes, come, come on up. So yeah. we went to Glen Eagles, met him that night, and then didn't see him for three months because he was firefighting this takeover bid. We never unpacked because huh. – the plan was to go to Glen Eagles for five years. Mm. Uh, my oldest son it was then one. In fact, he was one on my first day at Glen Eagles. And the plan was then to go back to Canada for school or, yeah. or, or to the States. That didn't work. That didn't happen uh, for Still reasons. Still trying to get back there. <laughs> oh, no. So, yes, that's right. The, the 40 years later. But. Um, it, no, it was a, a very exciting time. And then, of course, Bells was uh, taken over by Guinness. So we never really unpacked because in the first 20 months, I had three different owners. Yeah. And so we thought, oh, this is not going to last. We'll be, yeah. you know, we'll be out of here. We'll, somebody will throw us out and you know, mm-hmm. want to take it over. But they didn't. And we continued. And then Guinness took over. And Guinness uh, then proceeded to sell, at this point, owned about 150 companies that mm. if, as a result of diversification during the 70s, mm. and they were getting rid of companies. In fact, my chairman at the time, I think, sold 120 companies in wow. his tenure. That's <laughs> quite a CV. <laughs> it's quite. A, it is quite a CV, isn't it? So, anyway, so that, and then we had I 31 very happy years at Glen Eagles, which you know included things like Ryder Cups, which we can talk about and yeah. how that was came about. Things like G8s, which yeah. were you know amazing experiences. And we did a lot of development. Uh, you know, th- what kept me there was the fact there was always something new to do. Uh, mm. with, and uh, Diageo, what well, Guinness then merged with GrandMet to become Diageo, were always very supportive about um, development as long mm. as we could fund it ourselves. And yep. I, there were two key lessons I learned from that. Is one is you know, generate your own cash and invest where you can. Where you can. Yeah. Uh, and the second one was don't cost your own or any management time. Yeah. especially when you're a non-core asset because mm. as a non-core asset if you cost management time then you should be sold as a and i would agree as a shareholder you should be sold yeah. anyway so that was we had very a very positive positive. and the other thing that Diageo were very good to me about was i had a rule with Diageo that said uh, we had met every year had a review and i had a deal with them that said if you think i'm past my sell by date you tell me and if I've got up in the morning and haven't got a new idea for the business, I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so we had this discussion every year for you know, 25 odd years, which was good. But it was a good discipline, actually, because yeah. you know, you, when you've been somewhere a long time, you've really got to be disciplined about knowing mm. when you should go and, and, and just test that with, with, your, with other people. Mm. But the Azure was also very good about letting me do non-executive uh, things. They yep. saw it as very positive for me and the business. So I did a number of things. I chaired something called Tourism Training Scotland for the government. Then I went on to chair Visit Scotland, which was the uh, Scottish Tourist Board. This is another example of taking on something that everybody tells you you shouldn't. Yes. Uh, this was a completely broken national organisation, the Scottish Tourist Board, partly for their own fault because they didn't change and move. Mm. You all have seen many organizations that do that. Yep. Um, but they'd also had to go through, if you remember, 2001. and 2000, 2001, they'd gone through Foot and Mouth, they'd gone yep. through Mad Cow, and they'd gone through 9-11. Mm. So for, as a tourist industry, that's a pretty tough list to uh, kind of get yourself through. Yep. So it was a broken organization. So government asked me to go in and, as chair and effectively blow it up and start again. And everybody told me not to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was all downside risk. It was all, and reputational risk. Uh, if it had gone wrong, it's, it would have really damaged reputations. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I do these things, but I do. I, I <laughs> we do, could
0: spend uh, probably a, a couple of days and that.
1: <laughs> well, I think, and it probably does go back to my school life and that yeah. uh, that whole dyslexia thing. It's about, I mean, I think I invented imposter syndrome, or I, I, I suffered from imposter syndrome before imposter syndrome was invented, but yeah. um, because I, you know, at school, Nobody told me I was an idiot or anything like that, but you were made to feel like an idiot. Yeah. You, made to, you, know, you, you just you know, read your reports every term. And, <laughs> 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 um, and Or hope your parents don't read them. Well, <laughs> that's right. And they were very good. I mean, you, but you know they're disappointed, even if they kind of read them and say, well, you know, you've done, have you done your best? And all, that, mm. all those good things. Yeah, you know, you know they're disappointed and you know they're worried and disappointed so anyway mm. so you you've kind of been proving that trying to prove yourself ever, ever since and i've you know i've always and to this day i drive my wife crazy because mm. i'll do things but i'll always think somebody else could have done it better if i could have done it that well then somebody else could have done it better yeah and still do to this day so it just shows you how important those formative years are yeah uh, but however but also in my case fortunately with kind of supportive parents and a kind of determination that I always had, you do find other ways to do things, which has always been, I suppose one of my things, I've always been kind of quite innovative and just thinking Mm -hmm. about things differently. And that's dyslexics tend to do that. They see and look at things differently. Yeah. partly because they have to, and partly just because that's how their brain works. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just wired slightly differently. There's something
0: nice about that, but but Peter, and that, you know, we can go and discuss a Further, But there's, there's a piece in my mind that I meet so many people who have had adversity but use it, and they come from a humble place and they come from a humility place, which is that I'm not worthy or I, I mean, I'm not capable, I've got better. But actually, for me, fundamentally, that is leadership. It is about creating the conditions for people better than me to come in and do great work. So... Absolutely right.
1: You know, one of the things we did at Glen Eagle that uh, I think we have talked about a lot when we turned the organisation upside down. I mean, mm. and when, when I did that and people you know, kind of got completely mad and what was I doing? And <laughs> funny that the management did, the teams didn't uh, yeah. because they got it. Um, mm. But, you know, when you've got the traditional hierarchy, mm. the, 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 the pyramid with the notional leader at the top and the customer at the bottom, mm. um, especially in a service business, you know, in a business, you know, that production and service are often simultaneous. You can't and you can't put service into stock. No. And in a hotel business, in my life always, we've only got 24 hours to sell your product. Yeah, yeah. And then you start again. Mm. You can't can't put the room in stock and sell it in the future. Yeah. A meal, you've only got three hours to sell lunch and that's it. It's gone.
0: Yeah.
1: And the most perishable product that I've, uh, nobody's challenged me yet. I think I've managed the most perishable product known Mm. um, is a golf tea time. It lasts 10 minutes. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it is actually. <laughs> so it's the ultimate perishable, even more perishable than a newspaper. And newspapers twenty four hours, but uh, so so you live in an environment where you you you've got to sell it now, and you've got to be good every time. Yeah, all the time. It, it, everything's very visible. Mm-hmm. So we, when we did the the organisation change, people thought it's completely mad. But when they yeah. saw that, actually, well, the customer is the most important person.
0: Yeah,
1: the next most important people are the people who are dealing with the customer eight hours a day. Yep. Those people who normally organizations tell them to take their brain out and put them with their clothes in the locker uh, before they come to work and then come to work. In fact, they run a very good life outside, and but you know, business organizations think they don't don't know anything and can't do anything anyway. Yeah. And then suddenly you freed up these people, and we gave them complete freedom, trying to get managers to understand their only job was to support what is now an unstable pyramid because it's on its point.
0: yeah,
1: And it falls over if you don't uh, manage it very well and you look no. after it very well. They asked us for a limit. So I said, okay, well, it's £500. Pounds, and we said, you've got a- anybody in the organisation has authority over £500 pounds to fix a problem and make no. sure the customer doesn't leave with that problem, that it's been no. sorted. Yeah, And surprise, surprise, it wasn't. Often used because yeah. it was just sorted without doing that, but it gave everybody authority. And it's this this old thing about purpose, accountability, clarity, and empowerment. Mm. You know, if you've got those four things, it tends things tend to move uh, yeah. move quite quickly. Um, and if people are genuinely empowered, then let's say the results are enormous.
0: I think it's also amplified in the luxury world because you're talking about people who have paid, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 pounds for a suite. And therefore, when you're talking about 500 pounds for an organisation where the room might be 100 a night is, is different. But now you're talking about people who are spending serious money yep. and expecting this to be a real experience. So that pace is very, very important for solving yeah. things quickly. Yeah. And yeah.
1: well, there are two parts there. One is, you're right, and, one, and also those expectations are always moving up. Yeah. So if you had a good experience last time, you, well, what's new this time is, mm-hmm. is in the luxury market. And also what changed in my time is that, you know, if you go back to when I started, people were comparing with other British places. Yeah. Now people compared, you know, well, I was in Thailand and I had this experience. I was in Mauritius and I had this experience. Why can't I have that here? You know, so yeah. it's, they're comparing on a very different, on a global scale, the mm. quality of your product. The other thing that was important and a really important lesson is that if you expect people to sell luxury product, they have to understand luxury product. Yeah. And one of the things, when I got to Glenny, I couldn't understand why we weren't selling sweets. Yeah. So I went to the team and said, why aren't we selling sweets?
0: Mm.
1: And they said, well, these days, you know, mm. they're 600 pounds a night.
0: Yeah.
1: And you suddenly click. These people yeah. aren't making 600 pounds a month. So, you know, yeah. they're not so, and they've never experienced it. So why, mm. why are you going to sell something you've never experienced? <laughs> so we said to everybody, right, everybody, you're going to stay in the hotel a night and you're going to stay in a nice room. You're going to have breakfast. You are going to have a nice dinner. And then surprise, surprise sales went storming ahead. Yeah. Because they understood the value of the, why it was 600 pounds. Yeah. So it's, so it, it's on both sides, the luxury experience, the customer's expectation, but also gotta understand that the people providing the luxury have got to understand and, and feel it and understand what the customer is actually buying. Yeah. And what I
0: love about that also is and we're going to some of the detail here is is luxury is in the eye of the beholder. So, you know, I always remember a debate about coffee and the price of a coffee. You know, in Maurice Hotel in Paris it would be something like twelve euros for a coffee and therefore you expect something. Whereas you go to McDonald's or something you get a cheap coffee but it brought to life to me that there's a service around whatever you're offering so just giving somebody a room or suite is nothing compared to the the entrance i mean i remember our time when we were in dubai and the Madinat hotel and you know the petals that lined the corridor to take us into the room there was a, mm-hmm. there was a service was, which for a lot of people was exceptional excessive in some ways but that's that's the true es- essence of luxury—is where necessity ends, isn't it? Sans exubérant. Yeah.
1: yeah, no, yeah. that's it, right. And and luxury is the whole experience. that yeah. your are making. So it, it's a very special relationship you have with the customer. I always said that the ultimate to me was if every customer left Glen Eagles, and as they walked out of the door, they said, "I paid more than I thought I was going to pay. Mm-hmm. I spent more money than I thought I was going to spend, yeah. but it was worth every penny, and I can't yeah. wait to do it again." yeah that's cracked it yeah because we've done a good enough sales job to make you spend more than you thought you were going to spend that's good so we've done our sales bit and we've we've and we've done it in a way that you said that was fantastic it was worth every penny and i can't wait to do it again and tell my friends yeah and i said to my team if everybody says that as they walk out the door we can retire
0: (laughs) we've done it (laughs) It is, amazing. and it also I just I think there's something in there about you once said to me that when we were working with leading hotels in the world because we were talking about you know the lifestyle and there's there's some people in the luxury who work in the luxury industry who get carried away. You're in your words with the lifestyle, and you had to keep yourself grounded. I can't remember the exact words, but it's something you said about yeah. being smoke and mirrors and how you yeah. keep yourself grounded. Yeah,
1: well, yeah, well, certainly the hotel business, luxury in general, but certainly the hotel business is theatre. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got customers arriving, so they're not being their true selves. They're, they're, oh, I'm going to go Eagles, I'm going to play golf in this hotel, and I'm going yeah. to do this, and my wife's going to this luxury spa and you completely escape. You know, it's, a, it's complete escapism. Mm. And you've got staff, they're not themselves either. They're providing, they're creating this space and experience mm. for you, the customer. Yeah. So nobody's really being themselves, if you like. So yeah. you've got to step, and, and, it, and it's very easy. And I learned early on, I, at Four Seasons, I worked for somebody who was very senior at Four Seasons, and he knew more about food and beverage than anybody I've met since. Uh, it, I mean, he was just outstanding. Yeah. But he drank and gambled himself to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so I, I, I never forgot that, that you was know, was this outstanding talent and it was a time in those days when you did, everybody did go to the bar and you had a martini, yeah. you had a glass of wine with lunch and this, this is the management team and you thought <laughs> <laughs> I mean those days are long gone but there was a, yeah. everybody, everybody had a glass of wine and you you went after a work, you'd go to the bar and have drinks together and mm. you know, then you'd yeah. go to the, the the disco or the clock <laughs> yeah. uh, and be there till three in the morning and then yeah. back at work the next day. So they were different days but it did teach me that you've got to be very, you've got to have a very private life and you've got to, your family has got to be really ground you. And I was fortunate that, you know, my wife said she wasn't in the business. I didn't want her in the business. You know, it was kept as really separate from the business,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which was good because that meant when I came home, it was all about, you know, can you take your younger son? Cause he's been, terrible all day you
0: know <laughs> <That's right. laughs> that brings you back down to earth <laughs> <laughs> it does it's a leveler and a grounding yeah, yeah. no I, I i love that and i also love the fact that some hotels now have a family feel to them so even if they're luxury I always remember the plaza that talking about family but not over familiar but but the world of luxury is changing and, and in some cases the luxury is to feel like you're in a home but be served in a way that is exceptional. So I think it is moving that. But, but I think it is that I love seeing the back ends of properties to see what, you know, the dining room is like, the staff rooms are like at the back end, because it's a very different world to the
1: the front. Well, end. and that, that's always a test for me because, you know, I, I learned early on, it, when you do the upside-down um, mm. organisation, one of the things you learn is that the quality of external customer service is, and I would argue, never better than the quality of internal customer service, i.e. between the teams. Yeah. If that is service is not good to each other, If, if, if and it, the classic is the chef and the waiter. Yeah. When we did this uh, change in the organisation, there was this classic screaming and shouting between work kitchens. So I said to the chef... Who do you see as your customer? Mm. So, of course, they get, well, the customer's sitting at the table and, you know, we've got to make sure there is, and there's, and the, all the waiters just screw it up. Mm. I said, well, okay, h- how about any other customers? No. Mm. <laughs> well, how about the waiter is your customer? Well, what mm. do you mean the waiter's my customer? Well, if you don't give him or her the service and the opportunity to be good, yeah. your product's never going to be right at the table. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Light bulb. Yeah. So suddenly the chefs are realizing, geez, we've really got to look after the waiters because mm. they're the way that our product gets delivered. And if it's wrong, if, it, and if we don't look after them, the customers going to suffer. Yeah. So suddenly you had all these internal conversations going on that mm. dramatically improved external, the customer service mm. because back of house was really working for each other. But equally, the the look and the feel of the back of house has got to be the same. I never understood why you you expect somebody to put on a uniform, go and give five star service if they can't get a decent uniform, if they can't get a meal when they serve a nice meal in a nice restaurant. If You, know, you expect them to give five star service, but you don't treat them the same. Yeah. And it comes on to what we're you know we're seeing today in mm. that businesses in the current climate which with short, shortage of staff and covid and everything's going on and we come on to talk about but is that those businesses that look after their people mm. surprise surprise are yeah. not having as much of a problem and those who kind of made everybody redundant on the first day of covid and uh, you know a surprise a surprise now they can't hire people back yeah, I hope the industry. I'm not sure they will, but I hope the industry learns from this that mm. it, you really do. You can't get away with paying people minimum wages, not looking after them, not giving them a decent meal, uh, not looking after them, their mental health and, their, and just their general well-being, and expect them then to give five star service. It's, yeah. it's, it just doesn't work.
0: I would agree. Well, let's. let's so there's three things I would love to dip into. One is the current state. Uh, of the industry because I'm with you on that and I think there's there's some really bright spots out there of people who are really treating their people well, despite everything going on. And then there the, the, the downsides. I'd love to talk about uh, the Ryder Cup, um, but I'd love to talk about the G8 because that was that. If we start there, and let's end with you know the where we are now. The, the G8 talk to her about that because that is some undertaking to to host that. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was it was huge. I mean it's, it's um... Uh, yes, I mean so the biggest event anybody probably would ever do. I mean that even something like the Olympics, you're you're just kind of one hotel in among many looking after the Olympics. But the difficulty of the both the Ryder Cup and the G8 were all focused on one property and one group of people to deliver. So the, that, that was a uh, fascinating G8. Yes, I mean huge undertaking, huge planning. In the middle of it, we had the London bombings mm. the same week. Uh, So Blair, Tony Blair was kind of running up and down to London. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a really difficult week. But the the planning that goes into it in terms of for our team and obviously everybody else, but, you know, for nine people to meet, because the the European Commission president attends as well, so it's the G8 plus them. For them to meet, we had 3,000 journalists to look after in the press tent, in the press facility and 10,000 police. <laughs> Unbelievable. So you'd ask a policeman on the corner, can I drive my car out this way? And he'd show you the badge on his shoulder that said West Mercia Police. He had <laughs> because he had no idea whether you... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no idea which road goes where. But, uh, yeah, so it was uh, huge in many ways, but very satisfying in terms of just seeing how those things work and just the, mm. all the bilaterals and the, you know, it's 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 fascinating and of course it all you've got to be very fast response because a lot of those bilaterals are not they're not organized it's just tony blair wants to talk to you know putin and mm. suddenly they want a private room and they want a meeting so it's uh, yeah. and suddenly and that's got bush
0: a- falls off his bike yeah in the, the yeah. Number, yeah.
1: Well, to be fair to him, he is a very good non uh, cross country biker. He he was, uh, it wasn't his fault. But anyway, it that was oh, a good go. story.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was a great story. And I suppose the planning, the, the big thing for me is we're going to talk about the Ryder Cup as well. The planning to do these events plus run a property effectively yeah. in the moment, as you were talking about before, you know, the tea times and everything else, and get, even getting the course prepared, but keeping tea times and everything. Yeah, well, It must have been immense.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's yes, it's it like all things it's all in the planning. If the planning is good, the, the event will be fine. But and everything you've forgotten about will be will come back and will haunt you. For both those events, fortunately there is a track record of how they've done them in the past and uh, what's worked and what hasn't and and the government uh, and in this in our case the palace have very clear ideas because the queen came to the to, yeah. the to one dinner. They both have very clear Ways they want to do things, and then, mm. so that's uh, and it's always interested who takes precedence. And yes. <laughs> uh, I wonder so, if that's the same
0: nowadays, Peter. But uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think it is. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, so yes, yeah, so, so that that whole planning is fascinating. The mm. the um, the police aspect, the security aspect in particular, oh. is is quite amazing. Mm.
0: What was the area that was secured there? Because I mean nuts. Is it if something I heard? Something like thirty-five miles. Yeah, I think, well,
1: yeah. I think the, the fence around the fence around the property was five miles. From memory, I think it was mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. the immediate fence. So that was the, the, yeah. the inner core, if you like. But uh, yes, and when you think that you know, every drain gets checked, every yeah. manhole cover, every, you know, even stories like um, the dogs come in to sweep all the rooms, mm-hmm. and uh, just to show you how good the dogs are. I was in the office and some, one of my team came down and said, uh, the police have found something in suite 102. Uh-oh. <laughs> and the, dog, the dogs have gone crazy. Yeah. And it turns out that just before we'd closed the hotel, Jackie Stewart had been with us and he'd cleaned his gun. <laughs> and, Amazing. But minute traces under the table, that that's what yeah. the dogs picked up. That is incredible. I mean, the room is clean, but it's not clean enough for the dogs so it's still to still sniff. A, his in the room. Yeah. Oh.
0: <laughs> Jackie Stewart was a regular with you, wasn't it? Because that's his passion was shooting. And
1: up, to Jackie. Land. I mean, I've known Jackie Stewart since uh, when he was racing nineteen since, uh, late sixties, early seventies, when mm. he was a champion. He uh, built and ran the uh, shooting school for us when we ah. when we were opening year round business. Mm. We think, what are the activities that we can do in winter? That, mm. you know, it's not weather dependent. And sh- shooting was the first one. Equestrianism mm. was the second one. And then we did falconry and off-road driving, all of which was to develop winter business. Mm. Uh, but obviously it works year-round, but it was all to build that winter business so you had a sustainable 12-month model. Amazing, amazing.
0: So let's talk the uh, Ryder Cup, because that was, was it 25 years, did
1: you say? The, the Ryder plan? Cup, yeah, the Ryder Cup, was I mean, in these days of for all of us, how we think short term? The Ryder mm-hmm. Cup, from the first conversation I had with Jack Nicklaus uh, mm-hmm. at the memorial event in 1989 about whether he, he thought a Scotland and would would he and the U.S. PGA support Scotland? Would they like? Would they see that as a positive? And mm-hmm. they did. And Jack Nicklaus. Uh, who later designed a golf course for us. Uh, mm. That was part of a separate conversation. But um, that conversation was in 1989. The event was finally played in 2014. Mm. Uh, we won the bid in 2001. Mm. It was then because of 9-11 pushed forward a year. So it w- would have been in 13. It wouldn't mm. have, uh, and wouldn't Wales got it uh, four years before. So yes it was a uh, 25 years from the first conversation to actually playing it so it's kind of mm-hmm. kind of long term thinking and uh, strategy <laughs> yeah plus that, the course the
0: plus yeah. the
1: course as well yeah plus yeah I mean those all the preparations again a bit of like G8 It's a mm-hmm. huge planning exercise on on how the the I mean that comes quite late because the captain has a big say in how he wants the course prepared uh, okay. So the European captain, once they're an announced, then gets involved with how they want, you know, what their okay. ideas are for both course, course preparation and how he wants the team looked after and etc. So that, but again, a similar, there's a similar process. Again, there's quite a lot of uh, mm. expertise around having done this many times, both sides of the Atlantic, that helps that process. But every venue is different and every team is different. So, yeah. But again, uh, the thing there for me was, was we're winning the bid. I, Patrick Ellsmey, who you all know, my successor, mm, um, yep. who took over the management of the hotel in 2007, and seven eight, he, he got excited about actually running it. My yeah. real win, the buzz for me, was actually winning the bid. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. Because
1: you're up against other countries, then you're up against other venues in the country. So,
0: mm. And I, I, I want to use the Patrick piece because... Well, coming back to where the industry is at the moment, but one of the real successes for me and, you know, the way you treated me when we, we first met, the relationship we've had, but also when I sat with you in Edinburgh recently and and the, the way that people have a respect for you, a lot of what you do is based on people, the relationship and the longer term relationship. And you and Patrick have a longer term relationship around that. so. Just talk to me about that first, and then talk about where we are as an as an industry in terms of what we're going through in the moment.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Patrick is an outstanding hotelier. He joined me when I started when he was eighty four. He joined in eighty six as food and beverage director, joined us from <laughs> Mandarin, yeah, and uh, and then I so see he was very he was food and beverage director. Then he actually left, which was good. Mm. And, it's, and there's a something there about, and I've always believed this about. I, I never mind people leaving because mm. quite often they learn a lot and sometimes they come back. which yeah. is even better. Yeah. Uh, in Patrick's case, he went off to South Africa. He went. He ran the Old Course in St Andrews, and I managed to get him back. As um, uh, when I started to think uh, about how long I'd been doing it,
0: mm.
1: I started to think about succession. So I got, got Patrick back, and my promise to him was that you know I I would. Hand over the general manager role and and later managing director role to, to him eventually, uh, subject to his performance, which was fine, obviously fine. Yeah. But that, that was part of a succession thinking as well as a relationship. Yeah. Uh, so in in 2007, and eight, I when I'd run, you know, almost 25 years running the hotel oh. at that point, I said to Diageo in the in the meeting I told talked about earlier. Now yeah. I, knew, I said, listen, I think I've been. It's coming up 25 years. You know, I am coming to a point where I need to, and I've, I've got a great successor. We've got the Ryder Cup in in seven years' time. He's really excited about the build-up and, and developing that and developing the team. And I think a fresh approach would be good, you know, mm. letting him get, have his freedom. Um, and I think it's it's probably time to hand over to him. They said... Fine, That's so we like Patrick, he's a good successor, that's fine, but you're not going anywhere. So (laughs) (laughs) uh, will you become chairman? No. uh, And just, uh, obviously you've got the relationship with Patrick and that will work, I think, we think. Uh, And will you do some other work for us Mm -hmm. in Scotland? And at this time, Diageo, there were several things going on, like the closure of the Kilmarnock plant, Mm. some quite difficult political and public things going on. Yeah. So I worked as chairman of Glen Eagles from 2008, I think, till 2000. End of I left at the end of 14 after the Ryder Cup. And uh, between those years, I was also kind of director Scotland for Diageo, and did a number of uh, things for looking after various public affairs in, in Scotland, which again was another challenge, very exciting and completely yeah. different for me to 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 look after and manage.
0: Good. And just coming to now, let's talk about that because you're. Chairman of the Edinburgh Military Tattoo, yeah? Yes. You've got, yeah. that. You've got a number of non-execs that you, you hold. Yeah. But I think one of the key things that I'd like to talk about is just your support of hoteliers, the industry throughout this pandemic, because it, it is unprecedented, I think, even with 9-11 and everything else we had. this was Yeah, it
1: is. Very yeah. No, I've never... I mean... <laughs> And I was a bit torn. In some ways, you want to get back in and help and <laughs> you get stuck in. In other ways, you think other days, you think, well, I'm glad I'm not uh, running Glen Eagles at the moment. Wow, and yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Very difficult and very challenging. And so I spent a lot of 2020 in particular, you know, phoning people and saying, just how are you? And as you remember, we you get different responses. Some people were okay and some people weren't. Yeah. And then we also, one of the, uh, jobs. I chair a company called Taste Communications, which is a mm. communications business in the food and drink sector. And we've got a lot of hotel, uh, restaurant, chefs, mm. um, food suppliers as clients. And we quickly started a weekly call for everybody to get on that call. And we had a dinner at the end of last year just re- reminiscing about those calls. And it was, it was quite emotional, actually. Mm-hmm. People said, you know, there are some weeks where if I hadn't had that call, you know i'd have i'm not sure i'd have made it through yeah. and we had tears on the call and we had it's a really difficult mm. calls people just, just saying what the condition or the position they were in mm. but it really helped i think it really helped people just to talk about things and, and have somebody phone them every so often and say yeah tell me how you are and you know mm. is there anything i can do that's where i think the industry and the industry is good at that i mean yeah. we are a people industry and people tend to. Do look after each other and support each other. Chefs are a good example of that. They're very good at looking after each other and uh, yeah. taking yeah. care of, worrying about each other. Mm. And then the other thing is just getting out there and supporting businesses. If you can get out there and have a coffee or a lunch, or just yeah. just, just support them. Yeah, and uh, do do whatever you can and get as many people as you can to get out and about and support the industry through it. Mm. I mean, it's going to be difficult. Not everybody's going to survive through it. It's going to be, a, there will be a shake up. I think this winter is going to be difficult. It's the mm-hmm. third winter now. Yeah, uh, A lot of businesses are going through. The banks have been very good to date. Very good. But they've got shareholders too. They can't yeah. go on forever. But again, the industry is mm-hmm. incredible in terms of it. It's just constant Reinvents and you lose one business and another one pops up and uh, yeah. you know, and it, you think, well, where, where did that come from? What a great idea! Mm-hmm. So I think that's uh, that that will continue and that will you know, the industry is very good at that and it will express itself in new ways.
0: Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, that we don't want to wish these times on industries, restaurants and other places. But as you say, there's lessons in learning about how we treat people. And there's there's almost the, in the leadership side, I want to end with just if you had to pick three things in the leadership side that you think have been essential through what you talked about in 72 with the rubbish on the streets, through to 9-11, through to now. What What are the three principles you've always held in your mind around leadership that have helped you?
1: The key one, I've always tried to separate uh, leadership and management. And somebody told me earlier that management is about doing things right. Leadership is about doing the right things. Mm, Love it. it, Another one was that uh, management is about kind of leading the way up the ladder of success. Mm. The leadership is about making sure the ladder is leaning against the right wall. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Um, But leadership, I mean, for me, it's the time to think. Mm. And so many managers and leaders, particularly as, you know, they're running around full on saying they're leading and say, well, can you be a leader if you're not taking the time to think? Yeah. And don't feel guilty about it. You know, and I used to go for a walk or just the best thinking I always did was on flights. Mm, and that taught taught me a lesson because you're in a closed space you can't go anywhere that's it you just you know put the headphones in or whatever just think and it was great thinking time just being traveling was a great uh, space for that and then i think the thing we talked about earlier about the you know the purpose accountability clarity and empowerment i mean Mm. and the the third thing is all is it is about the people i never understand why people don't get the fact that you know nothing happens without people, and if you can't, if you're not recruiting, looking for the best people, and training them all the time, and developing them, and giving them opportunities, and you know mm. actually making them leave because mm. they're ready to go somewhere else, they come. I mean, like Patrick, they may well come back. We had a lot of examples. Alan Hill, you will know as well the chef, mm. he left us as well and came back in a bigger role, but he mm. learned a huge amount in in the meantime. Yeah. So that's the piece, the one piece that I, I think is, is mm-hmm. still the industry's not good enough at. If I look at my, I mean, Diageo was a good example about looking at a company in a different sector mm-hmm. uh, with a very different product and how they, how they did things. It was, yeah. it, was, it was great for us because we learned a lot from, they learned from us too because they weren't face-to-face with their customers. Yeah. You know, the average customer of a Johnny Walker bottle they never see <laughs> yes. and never meet. Yeah. Um, whereas we're meeting all our customers every single minute of every day.
0: Yeah. So I want to link it back to the humility piece, because I think there's people who naturally get it through their style, but there's people who naturally get it because of something like dyslexia or imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also people who get it through going through an experience like we're going through at the moment, realising where your friends are, the people who really care. Yeah. 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 In the, yeah. So I think it's yeah, important. Right. Yeah. So, I want to come back to the, the the final bit for you now, which is you're now in different roles. You're 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 not stopping. Yeah, you know, you're carrying on. You're doing various things. What is next for you? What what do you want?
1: I love just you know, different challenges and different businesses. I suppose uh, mainly. I mean, you get you get to cut with my colour hair. It's about uh, younger people trying to help young people who. If you can speed up their uh, development and help them and coach and, and guide them, that, that I get I get real buzz out of that, and always always have had, and will always do. Mm-hmm. The companies I'm involved with are fascinating. Got very different ones are in the retail business, the tattoo, in the you know the events and tourism business, Hamilton Inches is a silver and watches retail business. Uh, Baxter's food soups, you know, foods on you know it's a five hundred million pound business on both sides of the Atlantic, so they have all got completely different strategic issues. But when it all comes down to it, the mm-hmm. same problems and the same issues, and mainly come back to people again. Yeah, um, where are the people who are going to lead it? Where are the people who are going to manage it? Where are the people who are going to do the work? How are we going to ins- make them productive? How are we going to make sure they enjoy what they're doing and uh, they're building as much value as possible? And then I'm on the board of Dyslexia Scotland, a full loop, so I'm trying yeah. to uh, make sure that we help as many people, many young mm-hmm. kids as possible, well, and older. I mean, I didn't know I was dyslexic till I was 442. Mm-hmm. My oldest son was assessed because he was struck, started to struggle at school, and my clever wife... Uh, took him to an educational psychologist and mm-hmm. had him assessed. And I came home from work one day, never forget it. And Marilyn said to me, Oh, Matt Matthew's assessment arrived in the post. It's on the on the sideboard. Mm-hmm. And I never forget it. I sat down and read that and it was just stopped me in my tracks because mm-hmm. changed the name at the top and it was my school life. Yeah. It's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And my younger son is, is more dyslexic than Matthew's. And my wife, who had three dyslexics in the house, said, mm-hmm. you can't beat them, join them. So she <laughs> went back to university and nice. uh, t- taught for 12 years, I think, uh, young, all young people were like, dyslexic. It, it, develop strategies to cope with it Mm. very successfully. And that all taught me about how different people learn, and and Mm. how you you don't, some people need to hear it, some people need to do it physically with their hands, some people can just read it on a book and they've learned it. Uh, But we all learn differently, our brains are not the same. The education system still has a struggle with that, that individuals learn differently.
0: As we go into 22, and we've just redefined our strategies, amplifying the human in leadership. And there's a prime example, the individual, my wife's a teacher, and she's she's looking after her kids. Unless the parents are forcing the system to get them to be diagnosed and then supported, then there's a lot missing in the system at the moment to support that. So,
1: well, and I think not even for inf- non dyslexics, too, because yeah. this thought that you can still sheep dip kids and just all sheep dip them in and they're all going to learn something is yeah. it's not, it's not, that's not, human beings are not built like that. Our yeah. brains are wired differently. Yeah, it um, is. But it's, it, it makes it more difficult for teachers. I understand that. But yeah. um, if we're going to get the best out of people, we've got to rethink about how we educate uh, young people and how we do it differently to get the best out of them and give them the best chance of success.
0: Peter, we're going to kick into 500 in the new year. We're going to be talking. I'd love to get you back on to talk that specific point because that's one of the areas that we're going to be looking at in the the new year. Peter Lederer, as a friend, as, as a mentor to me, you've changed a lot of my thinking and I've, I've enjoyed our time together today and all the years that we've known each other. But uh, good luck for 22. And if anybody wants to find you, find out more about you, how could they get in contact, Peter?
1: On, on LinkedIn, probably through that. That's probably the easiest way. Yep.
0: Yeah, brilliant. I'll put the, the link in the show notes if people want to get in contact, but it's been a joy, sir. It was only supposed to be 45 minutes, but wow, it's gone even longer. So it's, you know, it's brilliant. Thank all you. Right. Um, I'm looking forward to catching up soon, Peter. Thanks again.
1: Thank you very much. Have a good year.
0: Cheers. Hey folks, what an episode. I could talk to Peter all, all day uh, around his career, his history and his points of view. But you can see from that that you get a sense of his background, his care for people, the succession planning he had in place at Clay but also the care he's had through the COVID pandemic for the community around restaurants, hospitality. And that is, is part of his makeup. He's how he's treated me when he first met me. And I was working with the leading hotels of the world right the way through to the relationships he's got. He's one of the most well-respected leaders in the luxury and leadership and hospitality community globally and delighted that he was here with us today. So hopefully you enjoyed that. Um, if you look forward to joining us on more episodes as we hear more, of leaders telling their tales. Cheers.